Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 318. My name is Camden Busey. I'm delighted to be back with you. We've got a great episode lined up for everybody. Let me introduce to you today our guests and our panelists. First, we have Nick Batzig, who is a church planner in Richmond Hill, Georgia, at New Covenant Presbyterian Church. Welcome back, Nick. It's great to speak with you this morning. Thanks, Camden. Thanks for having me back on. Yes, absolutely. We also have with us Jared Oliphant, who's Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Jared. It's great to have you on as well. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on this one. Uh, We are delighted to welcome back to the program yet again uh, Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who is President and Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Mike. It's good to have you with us as well. Thanks, guys. Great to be back again. I don't know. Is this two or three for me? I, I think it's three. Three? Is three? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Mike's written a, a bunch on canon and, and other New Testament issues. Uh, you can also visit him online at his website, michaeljkruger.com. The blog title is, or website title is Canon Fodder. But today we're going to be speaking about a new book, which is published by InterVarsity Press Academic, IVP Academic, titled The Question of Canon, Challenging the Status Quo in the New Testament Debate. A great book, uh, one I've been able to work through, and uh, we've all had the uh, opportunity to look through it. And uh, we're going to open that book up and, and speak about the importance of the question of canon for the Church. Why a canon in the first place? And we'll get to that after a few brief moments and a few uh, announcements. Uh, Nick, would you tell us about the upcoming Edwards Conference? Uh, we've got great news on that front. We want to remind folks of uh, that event coming up soon. Sure. February 27th and 28th. It's going to be at Durham University. And, uh, so if anybody wants to buy a really plane ticket and come over and hear Doug C. and John Payne and Steve Nichols and and um, some other Edward scholars, um, we encourage you to do that. And we have a number of UK listeners, so I think a few of them are planning on going. So if you can get there, Durham University, February 27th and 28th, I'd love to meet you there. So, mm. Thanks, Nick. Jared and, and Nick, we also are going to be present at the Desiring God Conference for Pastors coming up uh, next week. That is Monday, February what is that, the 2nd or the 3rd? I think it's the 3rd. The 3rd it starts, yeah, ends the 5th. Mm-hmm. And uh, Reformed Forum will actually be there, not just us walking around. We'll actually have a booth, and we will be exhibiting. Uh, so we're delighted to be there. Westminster, as well, will be there. Very close. I, I think your booth's actually next to the Crossway booth. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to that position. That'll be great. Yeah, and a very prominent place, so I'm sure you'll get a lot of traffic. But we encourage anyone who's going to be there to uh, stop by the booth if you can. We'd love to meet with you. We'd love to speak uh, face-to-face and get to know you. Uh, We should have some freebies and some literature. Uh, Got some CDs of uh, Carl Truman speaking about the Reformation. We should have a handful of of our uh, infamous coffee mugs and uh, perhaps whatever else I can get uh, scrounged up for this event. So we're looking forward to being there, and uh, hopefully we can speak with you. Now, before we actually got started, we actually talked uh, with Mike a bit about what's going on down at RTS Charlotte. Now, here you've got a number of events coming up and also some new academic programs. Mike, could you tell us what's going on down in RTS? Thanks, Camden, for a chance to to share a little bit about what's happening. Yeah, just two quick items. One uh, conference coming up. We have an annual Harold O.J. Brown lecture series named after the professor, uh, Dr. Brown, who was was a faculty member here for 10 years before he passed away. And that lecture series covers a lot of topics, but Mark Dever will be coming February 11th to do lectures here on the topic of sanctification. So that should be very interesting. 
If you're in the area or willing to drive to Charlotte, it's basically 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Or sorry, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. that day, which includes two lectures and a lunch in between, which is provided. So you can check out our website for the info, but that'll be a great conference. And most of us know Mark Dever and mm-hmm. appreciate him very much. And it'll be a, a great time. The other thing I'll mention, which is already sort of in the news and circulating, is that RTS Charlotte is starting a new program in biblical counseling, which will launch this fall, 2014, if all goes to plan. That program includes an MA in biblical counseling, but also several other degrees, such as a dual degree, MDiv, MA combination, and also an MDiv with a counseling emphasis. We're very excited about that. It's a brand new thing, and we're in the hunt right now for a brand new faculty member related to that. So uh, God's at work in that area here, and we're we're looking forward to seeing how he blesses it. That's exciting. Well, where can people uh, find you online to find out more about that program as well as uh, the various events going on at RTS Charlotte? You can go to www.rts.edu backslash Charlotte, and that will take you to our campus, and then you'll see highlights to all the different things, including the Mark Dever lectures. Great. Well, we're very thankful for all you're doing, and we're pleased uh, that you are the president down there and, and doing great work, and so it's exciting, and it's good to have you on the program today. We want to uh, open up this book, and we are really excited to look at uh, Mike's book here, The Question of Canon. Uh, challenging the status quo in the New Testament debate. And um, I got to tell you, oh, it's so important that we talk about canon issues, because when we do so, we're talking about God's Word, and we're, we're talking about um, you know what, what we include in there, or better yet, what we recognize as God's people as being His Word to us. Uh, Mike, now you had another book, uh, Canon Revisited with Crossway. Now, for the listeners, could you describe a little bit of the different aims that you have in both of these books? Because they're, they're with different publishers, but nevertheless, they have a different um, purview, as it were, even though they're both speaking about canon. Yeah, that's right. If I were uh, more market savvy, I probably would have waited another year to release this one, perhaps. <laughs> um, too, too close together here, both with the term canon in the title, people wondering what's the difference. Uh, well, they are very different books. I mean, obviously, whenever you talk about the New Testament canon, you're going to cover some of the same ground. That's inevitable. But the, the real target audience and the point is different. Canon Revisited with Crossway, which was released in 2012, really was geared towards Christians and towards the question of how you know. So that was a book more on epistemology at its core. It was really the question of how do we know or whether Christians are justified in thinking they can know which books belong in the canon and which books don't. In other words, Christians claim they know, but do they have any grounds for it? That was really my basis for Canon Revisited, and I developed what you might call a theological model for how Christians know. And so it was really geared towards Christians and and really geared towards justification of our knowledge. This new book, The Question of Canon, really has a different target audience, a different question altogether. The target audience here is more uh, modern scholars in uh, more of the academic community. Um, And the question that I'm answering is not really the question of how do we know, um, which books belong in the canon. The question I'm asking in this book is, why should there even be a canon? Uh, should there even be a canon at all? Or what, what in early Christianity would have given rise to a canon? That's a very different question. So what people are surprised by when they read the book is that I don't really deal with the question of which books at all, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of strange. You think about it, isn't that the whole point of canon is which books? But that's really not the point of this book. This book is dealing with the question of whether there should even have been a canon. Uh, now, from a Christian perspective, that might sound like an odd question, but in modern scholarship, that's what really most modern critical scholars are starting to say these days, is that the idea of a canon was this late, after-the-fact idea sort of artificially imposed on the Christian faith. And what I argue in the book is, no, there's something inherent and something innate to Christianity that gave rise to a canon. So those, that's really the difference between the two books. 
Now, you know, right in the subtitle, you're, you're suggesting, or at least IVP academic is suggesting, <laughs> that you are challenging the status quo in the New Testament debate. What is the status quo? Uh, what is the baseline generally accepted belief out there in academia regarding the question of the New Testament canon? Yeah, that is the essence of the book, is challenging the status quo. IVP picked up that, they made up that title. I didn't really pick that title, although it works. Um, when it comes to canon, the status quo today is a little bit of what I mentioned a second ago, which is this idea that canon was just not something that was was originally there. The idea of it wasn't even originally there when Christianity started. Uh, sure, there were books, but no one really thought much of them. They were all occasional books written by people for just general advice. And it wasn't until much later, usually second, third, fourth century later, that someone came along and said, hey, you know, we really ought to have a canon. Uh, canon is a good idea of something we ought to have, um, and let's sort of create one. And so the, the standard status quo view in the critical world today is that the, the idea of canon is something that's a creation of the church, particularly the creation of the later church, which is an artificial one uh, that was designed to sort of uh, you know bolster political power or what have you. But it's really not something that's innate to the faith. And so what you find in modern scholarship is this idea that original Christianity, if you want to use that term, was more about oral tradition, they were more about preaching, they weren't concerned about books, they didn't really care about books, and it wasn't until much later that the, the idea of canon was sort of imposed on it. Mm-hmm. So that's the status quo, and of course I'm, I'm coming to the scene saying, well, that, that may be the status quo today, but that, that, that there's aspects of that just simply don't hold up. And so my book is designed to work through five tenets of that view and show where each one of them is, is, is lacking. It struck me this time around reading uh, one of your books that there is such a blend of historical studies, um, biblical studies, and definitely a, a whole lot of theology, which the average me- reader may not um, initially think when they're picking up a book like this, that it, it might be you know, getting into like the, the nitty-gritty details of um, you know, papyri and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it, you have a quote here from Kurt Allen, and he says that um, the issues surrounding canon confront every Christian theologian, um, again, which might take some people by surprise. Can you elaborate a little bit on what makes him say something like that? Well, yeah, that's actually one of the, 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 the basis for the title, um, is the question of canon is something that everyone must deal with. And this, of course, is one of the reasons I wrote the book, is to try to help people realize that that you can't you can't relegate the question of canon to the to the sort of dusty halls of academia and say well that's really their question or or that's really a question just for scholars or that's just a question for uh, people who have PhDs it's a question everybody must face it's a question every Christian theologian and I would argue regardless of whether uh, Kurt Alon meant it this way I would argue everybody's a Christian theologian uh, on one level or another and or at least ought to be and so I think this question of canon just is pervasive everybody has to face it sooner or later. Um, even though my book wasn't written for laymen, which is sort of paradoxical, I know, I think the question is for laymen uh, and is for every Christian. And so my, my goal with the book is that if it can help people who are at the leadership level or the pastoral level think more clearly about canon, then they can help their congregations think more clearly about canon. One of the big principles that you bring up is this difference between an extrinsic and an intrinsic model. That's a theme and a distinction that carries throughout the entire book. Can you describe the basic features of, of both, maybe starting with the extrinsic model and and describing what it has going for itself and also some of its failures? Yeah. When we talk about the status quo in, in modern scholarship, the status quo is the extrinsic model. In other words, most scholars today, and there's exceptions, of course, 
hold this extrinsic model. And the essence of that model is this idea that canon, again, is a late creation of the early church, sort of artificially imposed on it from the outside. And so the extrinsic model would believe things such as uh, when the books of the New Testament were written, they weren't written with any awareness of authority, nor were they written with any intention of being authoritative books. That was something that happened later when Christians began to think about it. A second example of a tenet of the extrinsic model is the idea that that Christians weren't really interested in writing. They were they were illiterate. They were only interested in oral tradition. It was only later when the church began to write that these things took on importance. Uh, so the term extrinsic is obviously a reference to exterior, outside. And so the idea is, with that model, is that the, the concept of canon is an exterior, external, artificial, if you want to use the term alien idea, to early Christianity. Now, there's some things about that are true. Uh, you know, they make the extrinsic model makes some good points. I mean, one of the obvious ones is the church did play a role uh, in the formation of a canon. So, in one sense, it is a creation of the church, depending on what one means by that. Uh, another aspect that the extrinsic model gets right is that the canon wasn't settled in the first century. Right? It wasn't an instantaneous thing. It didn't happen overnight. It wasn't as if all, all the dust had settled right away. And so, it was a long, drawn-out process. And those things are true. The problem, though, with the extrinsic model is that it doesn't acknowledge that, that, that the seeds of canon or the essence of the idea of canon was sort of built into the infrastructure of Christianity. And that's really why I advocate what I call the intrinsic model. The intrinsic model, uh, which as the name suggests, suggests that canon is something more natural, more innate, more organically developing within the early Christian faith. The way I say it in the book is to think of canon as a seed planted within Christianity. And even though you can't see the the, the, the fruit of that yet, even though you can't see the sapling yet, the seed was built into the nature of the faith from the start. And so it just naturally started to grow. It didn't have to be planted. It didn't have to be created. It didn't have to be added. It was already there uh, in essence. Um, and so this is, the, this is the idea behind the intrinsic models, that there's very good reasons to think the canon would have been a natural, innate, early development within the faith. Now, that doesn't suggest the canon was all settled immediately. It does suggest, though, that the concept was there. Yeah. And we should be surprised uh, to see it develop early. When you come into the first chapter, I think it's very helpful that you draw out those two distinctions between um, ontological and functional when you talk about the two dimensions of canon and the difficulty of definition. I thought it was a nice compliment to um, how you deal with those things in Canon Revisited. Could you talk to our listeners just a little bit more about what do we mean by ontological and functional when talking about definition of canon? Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a great uh, question. It's, it's very much the reason I started the book with that issue. One of the things that's been going on in Canon studies for a while is this sort of in-house debate about the term. Um, and the average Joe out there who's just talking about canon with his buddies doesn't even know there's a debate about the term um, and doesn't even realize that scholars use the term differently. And so the term canon is just used in lots of different ways. And so what I did in the first chapter is say, look, you've got to understand the different ways it's used so that you can understand the claims made on the basis of those definitions. And so what I highlighted is that there's really three definitions that are used. The most common today is the exclusive definition, which argues that you can't use the term canon until all is done, right? Until there's a final, complete, closed list where everybody agrees. Now, if you use that definition of canon, obviously you don't have a canon until the 4th century or later. And this is one of the problems with modern scholars' claims. They keep saying you don't have a canon until the 4th century. But what they really are doing is they're building in the definition, in the de- or rather, they're building the date of canon into the definition itself. So by, by uh, definition, you couldn't have one until quite late. 
And so I, I bring that up and I say there's a legitimacy to that. It's okay to use a definition like that. You just have to realize the limitations of it. Uh, there was a lot of books that were regarded as scripture long before the fourth century. And so if you say you can't have a canon until the fourth century, you're leaving out a lot of evidence. So therefore, I came up with what I call the functional definition, which is the second definition. That, that definition says that you have a canon as soon as books start functioning like scripture. Doesn't mean the process is done. Doesn't mean everybody agrees necessarily. Just means as soon as books start functioning as scripture, you can say you have a canon. Now, if you use that definition, you have a canon as early as the second century. Um, and arguably even late in the first, uh, depending on how you look at certain pieces of the evidence. So that changes the debate quite uh, significantly. But it's really the third definition, what I call the ontological definition. And uh, I imagine you guys probably love that term. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, this, is the, this is resonating with Jared's uh, point earlier about liking the theological uh, discussion aspect of things here, which, which is why I put it in there. And that is the ontological definition says, look, why is canon only defined by human reception? Uh, isn't canon something that God does? Isn't, aren't these books he's given and effectually written? And yeah, through men, but effectually it's his activity. If that's true, then you have canon as soon as the books are completed. In other words, canon is in the mind of God. It's something that he's done. And so in that definition, you'd have canon as soon as the last book of the New Testament was completed, um, regardless of whether anybody recognized it or not. And what I do in that definition is separate the essence of what canon is, thus the term ontological, from its reception by humans, which goes to functional and exclusive definitions. And so what I do at the end of that chapter is conclude, look, all three definitions are legitimate as far as they go. You just have to realize that all three are in play, and they really interface with one another. Sort of this uh, tri-perspectival kind of approach to it. So I figured you guys would love that, too. Um, <laughs> we just had John Frame on a few episodes ago, too. So Yeah, that's right. Apropos. So I, I give some credit to Frame and Poitras for that. Uh, but really, you know, in all, in all seriousness, there really is a tri-angle uh, to those definitions. And they really do interface with each other in a, in a, in a complementary way. Mm -hmm. Mike, I thought it was such a helpful point um, in the debates where you mentioned if absolute uniformity of practice across all Christendom was uh, a condition for, you know, constituting the closing of canon, then that means we still don't have a canon today. Yes. And it's it's such an it's an argument that's marshaled so often that people disagreed, but just the fact of disagreement really doesn't say a whole lot. I mean, it, it can be helpful, but you have to qualify that. Um, so I th I really appreciated that point. Yeah, well, you know, that's the, I'm glad you brought that up because that does get said a lot. I can't tell you how many discussions I've had with people where their their argument is, well, look, Luther rejected James or whatever, you know, uh, or Luther doubted the 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 canonicity of James, and and of course. My response is, well, so what? Um, you know, it doesn't really have any bearing on the larger picture because individuals or even individual groups disagree. That's going to be an inevitability until the consummation, right? And mm. as, long as, yeah. you, as long as you live in a fallen world, there's going to be people who disagree um, and people who have erroneous views. And so it's interesting how people trot out the disagreement as if that is the trump card right. that settles the whole debate. And what you realize is hidden behind that assumption is really post-modernity. In post-modernity, yeah. which is, you know, no one's right, uh, no one really knows, uh, there's no one right view, and so all you have to do is show that people disagree, and suddenly you just have to concede no one can be right. And I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. Philosophically, it doesn't make sense. Uh, historically, it doesn't make sense. And theologically, it doesn't make sense to think that you'd have uniform agreement from here to eternity. And so that's a, a really key point to get some headway in the canon debate. Yeah, and just at a very basic level, you, we ask, where does that anchor the meaning and significance of what Scripture is? It would anchor it in Luther. And his opinion and, and yeah, his own exactly. views rather than in the text itself. 
That's right. I, I, I always tell people it's tantamount to saying that Christianity can't be true because other religions claim they're true. Mm-hmm. Well, Pluralism. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, so? Just because someone disagrees and says that their religion is true doesn't mean there can't be one true religion. That's just philosophically a non sequitur. Um, and so it's the same argument that people make regarding canon, which is, well, someone disagreed out there, therefore, and I'm, I'm, my response is that, that therefore just doesn't follow. Mm-hmm. And, that, and hopefully and focuses it on the reasons for disagreement, not just the fact that it exists. Yeah. Exactly. That's really the weakness um, with those that would approach this, as you say in your other book, from a community-determined or historically-determined perspective, largely is that it could fall into that subjectivity, right, where – um, it just becomes highly subjective to this community or to this individual's historical research. Um, would that be along the same lines, the problem? Absolutely. In fact, I, I think you could argue pretty clearly that the extrinsic model as a whole would be a community-determined model. Um, right. I didn't say that in the book because it really crosses over to Canon Revisited at that point. But it, that really was the point, which is what I've done in this book is I've just honed in on the community-determined model more narrowly. Right. Um, and asked, well, does it really make sense to think that canon's a creation of the church? Um, and I argue historically in this book, not theologically, but I argue historically it just didn't work out that way. Right. Now, in the second chapter, you ask the very important question, was there really nothing in early Christianity that may have led to a canon? Uh, what are some of the arguments here uh, that the, the status quo seems to make about the fact that uh, early Christianity would not have um, naturally given rise to this idea of canon as we have it today? Yeah, well, this is uh, shocking when you look at modern scholars' claims sometimes. They'll make statements, and I record some of these in the in the book, of course, something to the effect that, well, no one was even thinking about such things, you know, uh, statements to the effect that it never entered their mind, never mm-hmm. crossed their mind that there would be a canon. Um, and I had to just step back and say, really? Is that true? I mean, would we really think that early Christians— wouldn't have had any predisposition or inclination or thought that maybe there would be a new written revelational deposit from God. Um, and so what I do in this chapter is I, I start dealing with Christian theological beliefs um, and whether those theological beliefs would create the proper soil, if you would, out of which a canon could grow. And I make the argument it does. It creates a very fertile soil. So fertile, in fact, that when the canon does grow, you can't say it's artificial or unexpected. You have to look at it and say, well, yeah, well, that makes sense. Given all the, the factors here, um, given the soil and the conditions, theologically speaking, you would expect there to be a canon. So what I do is I outline three categories of Christian belief and why those would give rise to a, a new collection of books naturally. Now, of course, I make the very careful distinction that my claim, in this book at least, is not that those Christian beliefs are in fact true. Now, of course, I think they're true. Sure. We write a different book that they are true, but that wasn't my point here. My point was not that they're true. My point was that Christians did, in fact, believe them. And if they believed them, then it would have given rise naturally to a new collection of books, regardless of whether they were true. Uh, and that's, I think, part of the argument that, that needs to be made on a historical basis. Mm-hmm. So I talk about several of these things. One of the ones that that uh, certainly would resonate in the Reformed community and certainly I know with you guys and, and with many people down here at RTS would be the idea that early Christianity was eschatological. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the term eschatological, of course, can mean lots of things. I make it very clear that what I mean by that is not that they believed in the second coming, not that eschatological, uh, but eschatological, and they believed that the new covenant was the completion of God's redemptive plan up to that point. In other words, that it was the, the fulfillment of many, many promises in the Old Testament, that Christ was the was the uh, pinnacle of what God had been doing redemptively 
uh, for thousands of years with the nation of Israel. And so they believed that the, that the, that the, 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 the ages had come to a climax in the coming of Christ, not to say the consummation, of course, that was still yet to come, but that there, there was something grand that had been uh, achieved there in terms of redemption. And, of course, I make the point, as you recall in the chapter, that, that there's a sense in which whenever you have such a clear redemptive activity like that, that God often drops new revelational deposits at the end of other redemptive activity historically. Um, and uh, I make that argument more fully in the book, and, and I tie it to other things that they anticipated about the New Covenant. But that, I think, is an example of the kind of thing I do there. I thought that chapter was so helpful because you're, you're building up an argument, and like I said, in, maybe in this chapter especially, there's a lot of theological concepts that are embedded into what you're talking about. You mentioned yes. eschatology. Uh, you take us through the redemptive revelation pattern that, that you briefly just mentioned, and you also talk a little bit about covenant. Um, can you talk a little bit about how uh, covenant is important to this discussion, and um, maybe it'll come out a, a little bit too, how uh, that is related to the previous two theological concepts that we mentioned? Yeah, I mean, covenant is, I think, an overlooked idea when it comes to canon. And, of course, in the Reform world, this isn't true. I mean, we, we have the arguments of Klein and others who made this connection. But in the secular world, this is not talked about. What's ironic about that is there's a lot of historical evidence, even in, the, in critical scholarship, that, that covenant and canon are very closely related. And, and the way I make the point in the book is simply by, by showing that the concept of covenant was largely associated with written things. So you really wouldn't even talk about a covenant unless you were talking about a text. Um, the idea that you could talk about a covenant without a text, without a document, was just foreign to the biblical to the biblical religion. Starting back in the Old Testament time, of course, uh, when you would have uh, uh, the type of covenant that God would make with Israel on Mount Sinai, you would have obviously written documentation from it or for it, starting with the Ten Commandments. And that, as I argued, was really uh, similar to the way you know ancient treaties were formed in the world during that time. So what that meant is by the time you get to the first century— there's a very close association in the minds of early Jews that when you talk about covenants, you're talking about written documents. And so if you're a first century Jew and you begin to believe that there's a new covenant and that God has eschatologically brought to fulfillment all his promises in this new covenant, the idea that you would not expect a written documentation of the covenant is just absurd. Uh, of course you would. And there would be a sense in which a new covenant would require a new covenant text. So I just make that argument that the, the natural follow that that brings uh, would have given a, a strong predisposition towards a new covenant in, in the minds of early Christians who were Jews. Hey, there are several factors that are just built right in that make it very clear that they would have expected canon. It wouldn't have been an unusual thing. What about the role of the apostles? What role did they have at this time, and how did, would that have given rise also to the establishment of a canon? Yeah, this is also key. Um, you know, the, the, the apostolic role is a really a clear reason why we have a New Testament from the very start. And that, of course, naturally is a derivative of their authority. If they're allowed to speak for Jesus, if they're allowed to, to uh, declare uh, divinely inspired truth by virtue of their apostolic office, if they're you know, commissioned to speak God's very words, if you will, then the medium by which they deliver those words is relatively secondary. In other words, they're, they're, it doesn't matter whether they deliver those words orally or in written form, they're going to still bear the same level of authority. Uh, we already know that in the early church, oral tradition was, was very widespread and that the authoritative teaching of the apostles was often transmitted orally. That's not in dispute. But it's also very clear that they often wrote down their apostolic teaching. And of course, I just make the obvious point that is, hold on a second. 
if you have an authoritative apostle who writes down his authoritative apostolic teaching, that book would be regarded as authoritative from the start. The idea that you would have to wait two centuries for someone to kind of come up with the idea that really that book bears authority just doesn't follow. That book would have authority from the very beginning. Then I also discussed the question of why the apostles would write it all. In other words, why not just, you know, keep preaching orally? And then I, I go into quite extensive arguments about how uh, the, the apostolic mission and also the apostolic uh, uh, exclusiveness, in other words, they were, they were going to die out and there were going to be no more apostles after them, would have led them to write fairly naturally because that's the only way their message could have had the longevity it needed. That's kind of the sum and or the substance of uh, chapter three here with this supposed aversion to written documents. Yeah. Um. Can you, <laughs> which is kind of odd considering the Jewish dependency on scriptures and whatnot. But what was the socio-historical background here? And um, is it true that early Christianity was an oral culture exclusively? Yeah, this is a this is a third tenet that that is circulating in modern scholarship. That every time I read it, I'm 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 always surprised by the dogmatic claims that are made about the nature of early Christianity. And you have to understand there's a, there's a history behind this. You know, when you and I uh, hear this, we think that's crazy. I mean, the early Christian uh, religion was decidedly uh, born out of a Jewish heritage, which clearly valued books. So how could you claim such a thing? We have to realize that modern scholarship, particularly over the last hundred years, has very much tried to push away from that um, into this sort of idea that, that most of early Christianity was really Greco-Roman. It was really largely Gentile. Now, there's some truth to that, of course. Uh, but when you look at the roots, that's not true um, in terms of where it came from. And so the real thing driving this is sort of the illiteracy of early Christianity. People say, look, most Christians couldn't read. Uh, probably only 10% tops could, would be considered literate. What you have here is an oral, oral culture that would have despised books. Now, in my chapter, what I do is I make it very clear that I think those statistics on literacy are probably right. Uh, most people in the Christian world were probably couldn't read. 10% is probably a good and fair number in terms of literacy rates. The thing that, that, that they don't often tell you, though, is that was true for everybody in the ancient world. That wasn't a distinctive Christian problem. <laughs> uh, you know, It was true for everybody in the world that they were only about 10% literate. So to conclude that a culture is oral— as a culture, just on that basis alone, is just a faulty argument. You, have, you can be textually oriented and largely illiterate as a culture, um, and those two are not mutually exclusive. Another way to say it is you can have a culture like Christianity that's largely illiterate, and they can still value books. Yeah. And that's exactly what early Christianity did. They valued books even though most couldn't read them. And so the question is, well, how do you absorb a book if you can't read it? Well, it has to be read to you. It has to be taught to you. You have to have different catechism-type instruction, and that's exactly what we see in the early faith. Mm -hmm. Mike, in chapter 3, you go through um, the apostolic authority issue, and and you show very clearly from Scripture how that was part of what the first uh, readers of Scripture would have understood and noted as a mark of um, of, uh, the canonicity of these books. And this question may be a little bit outside the range of the chapter that you wrote, but I know as a young Christian I really wrestled with, how come we have... Um, certain books that were written by apostles, and then other apostles didn't write scripture, and then guys who weren't apostles wrote scripture. Um, how would you deal with that? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, that that that's a, a key question. In understanding canon, um, and he, as you noted, even though I don't don't address that directly here, I do address it in other places, including canon revisited, because it's such an important issue. One of the distinctions I make in Canterbury Visited is the distinction between saying a book was written by an apostle versus being an apostolic. 
and this gets to the issue of what, what New Testament books are. Um, the New Testament books at their core are apostolic books, but the question is what we mean by that. And I don't think in, in early Christianity anybody necessarily meant by that that it had to be written physically by the hand of an apostle. When early Christians said a book was apostolic, what they meant by that is that the content was. In other words, the content was apost official, authoritative, apostolic content. So then the next question you ask is, do I have a reason to think this book contains official, authoritative, apostolic content? And you can get there a couple different ways. One, of course, is if it actually was written by an apostle, like Paul's letters, well, then you got a fairly clear shot at that. Um, but you could also ask the question, does the person who's giving me this information, is he, is he just simply relaying apostolic information? In other words, did he have access to it? Did he get it from an apostle? And so I have reason to think that the words on this page are directly apostolic teaching. And of course, the books in the New Testament that weren't written by apostles uh, have that claim built into them. And so whether you look at a book like Luke or a book like Hebrews, both of those, for example, are very clearly given deference to apostolic teaching. In fact, they both do it in their very, very early stages. Luke does it in his prologue and in essence says this book is apostolic. Um, and even the writer of Hebrews does this in early chapter two there, which basically says we got this from the apostles. Incidentally, by the way, this is why a lot of people think Hebrews was written by Luke, uh, which is just a curious side note. Um, I'm not sure I'm fully there yet, although I think there's some compelling aspects to that that are worth looking at, um, mm -hmm. not to get us off track. But the point is, is that, that that idea is key. And so the question to ask is, do I have a reason to think this book contains authoritative apostolic content, uh, whether it was written by an apostle or whether it was, was gathered by someone who got it right from an apostle? Thank you. And then you deal more specifically in chapter three with the fact that the apostles and, and the authors of scripture were um, aware that they were writing authoritatively. Yes. Uh, I think you're referring to chapter four, actually. Well, before yeah. we get there, might I ask about this question of the imminent return of Christ? That's that's a curious question. And the argument being that because they would have expected Christ to return soon, there would have been no need or at least no overt necessity to write anything down to preserve yeah, it for the future. How do you, you address that uh, question in this book? Yeah, that's a that's a, another interesting uh, thing that comes up a lot in my conversations with folks. They're like, why would Christians bother writing? Didn't they think Jesus was going to come back in their own lifetime? Why would you bother writing books? Everything's oral, right? <laughs> right. Um, that, that just falls apart so quickly. It's amazing that it ever gets said, but you wouldn't you would be surprised how often it gets said. And so my two main responses to that were, one, there's no real evidence that Christians necessarily thought Jesus was coming back in their own lifetime. Uh, that doesn't mean that individual Christians nowhere believe that. No doubt that somewhere in the first century Christians might have believed that. But in terms of the official New Testament documents, did they teach that? Did they teach Jesus was going to come back in the first generation? And I argue not at all. Um, but then my second response, I think, is the, the more critical one, which is even believing in the imminent return of Christ wouldn't uh, keep one from writing down documents. Um, it, it's, it seems logical to us in the modern day that that would be the case, that if you think Jesus is coming back in the next, say, 30 years, that you wouldn't bother writing things down. But that wasn't true in the first century. There were highly eschatologically oriented groups in that time who were very busy as producers of documents. And the most obvious example is Qumran. Uh, the community at Qumran believed that the end was near. They believed that God was on the move. They believed that, that soon he was going to bring full judgment. And yet they wrote prolifically. And preserve uh, their writings in special yeah. ways, too. And they even believed some of their writings were scripture. Mm. Um, and so you, what you have there is this idea that eschatology, in this instance related to the second coming, eschatology and, 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 and literary production are not mutually exclusive. 
Mike, as I was asking you earlier, could you talk to us a little bit about the importance in this discussion um, regarding the writers of Scripture's consciousness about the authority with which they were writing? Yes, uh, this is a, another uh, tenet of the in- extrinsic model, uh, but I would argue it's not just a tenet of the extrinsic model, but a widespread belief, even amongst Christians. I was telling someone about my book a couple years ago when I was still writing it. Um, it's funny how long it, you write it so long ago, uh, you know, and then by the time it hits the shelf, you forgot what you wrote. But um, <laughs> you, I was talking a couple years ago about the book, and I was just telling an average Christian in the pew that I was arguing that, that when the New Testament writers wrote that they did have consciousness, they're writing authoritative books. And this person who was a strong Christian looked at me like I was just crazy. They're like, what? No way. No way did Paul realize what he was doing. And I realized that it's not just an idea among scholars, it's even an idea in the pew that that early that these that these uh, writings were done uh, without any awareness of what they were doing, and it was only later, uh, almost retroactively, that someone said, "You know, I really think that Book of Romans is something special. Let's call that scripture." Um, and therefore, suddenly you have a canon as a result of that. But Paul never intended such a thing. Now you can see why the extrinsic model is persuasive in that way, because they really need this tenet. They really need to believe that the early writers had no idea what they were doing and that the idea of these books becoming scripture was just something imposed on them. Uh, But what I argue is that, no, when you look at the writings of the New Testament, there is a consciousness there of writing authoritative books. Now, I qualify that. I I don't suggest that everybody knew there was going to be exactly 27. I don't suggest that they could foresee the full shape of it. Uh, What I argue is that they realized they were writing apostolic books, which would have borne the highest authority for the church. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter whether they called their own book scripture. That's a that's a red herring in my opinion. What matters is that they view their books as as having apostolic authority. And if they did, then they were the very words of God. What I do in the chapter is I give several examples from both Paul uh, and the Gospels and other books showing that I think they had apostolic awareness. Uh, now Paul, I think, is just an is just a a, a softball. Um, yeah. That's a you know lobbed in home run in my opinion at least in terms of his his awareness of his own authority. The big challenge for people is the Gospels. You know, it looks like when the Gospels are written, they had no idea what they were doing. But I challenge that, too, and we can jump into that if you want. Yeah, it'd be great. Go ahead. Well, one of the, one of the key examples, of course, is Luke's Gospel, which I alluded to a minute ago. Mm-hmm. I, I, I dive into that pretty extensively, particularly in the prologue, the first four verses, and talk about the way Luke sets that up. And what's interesting is the way he describes uh, where he got his uh, uh, materials from, the way he talks about uh, his sources there, um, and in, in essence describes himself as an apostolic man. He's basically saying, I was trained in these things. I am passing them along to you uh, from those who are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It's a very clear attribution to the apostolic uh, teaching. Hmm. Um, and there's no real doubt that when someone read that book, that they would be very clear, clear in their minds that, wait a second, Luke is, is making a claim here. He's purporting to, to be given us the apostolic message about Jesus' life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there would have been an inherent authority aware, uh, aware from the start there. He wasn't just a marketer. He's actually speaking about the ontological character of his, of his writing. Yeah, and this is, <laughs> this is tricky with the Gospels because one of the things you'll notice about the Gospel authors is they don't, they don't talk about themselves very much because you don't really even know they're there. The Gospel authors are, are kind of background narrators. Yeah. And this is by virtue of the genre, right? I mean, a, a letter is different than a, than a gospel. And so what you find is a bit of anonymity to these gospel authors. Now, people take that as a negative and say, well, therefore, you know, it's just, just a, you, know, you can't trust it because it's anonymous. But what I bring up in the book is that scholars, and I mentioned Armin Baum as an example of this, 
have argued that the Gospels were intentionally written as anonymous books uh, in order to sort of mimic and, and, and reflect the practices of, of Old Testament historical books, which themselves were anonymous. And so actually the anonymity of the Gospels, at least on the surface, not, not behind the scenes, but on the surface, was actually makes them even more obviously after the pattern of Scripture. Yeah, and their focus is on Christ in a very special way in that genre. And if they were doing everything as, as autobiography, it, it, would, it would certainly defeat the purpose. Correct. The, uh, the fifth chapter covers the date of canon, and uh, the fifth tenet that you're after here is uh, that the New Testament books were first regarded as Scripture at the end of the second century. Can you talk about some of the, the heated um, dating discussions uh, that, that are going on in that chapter? There, there's a lot to deal with there. Yeah, that's, that was a long chapter. Uh, <laughs> you never want to put the, the longest chapter at the end of a book. Uh, just as, just like in a sermon, you never make your third point the longest, right? Oh, no, that's a dangerous. Like a, <laughs> rule number one, which I decidedly broke here. Um, but Understandably. It was, you just kind of had to do it because of the nature of the debate. And, you know, as you indicated, there's a big debate here about date. People are hung up on the date issue. Um, and understandably, you know, the earlier the better, and, and there's some truth in that. And people really, the date issue is a hot topic. Modern scholars have pressed this significantly uh, to make the date further and further back. Um, obviously, if they use the term canon, they'll even say it's not till the fourth century. If they talk about just when books were used as scripture, they don't want to go any earlier than the end of the second century. Um, now, you can see how that fits an extrinsic model. The extrinsic model saying the idea of canon was late, and so this would fit their idea of, of the dating of canon. It wasn't until much later that people regarded these books as scripture. If you go the intrinsic model way, you can see that that you would expect books to be regarded as scripture much earlier if the intrinsic model were true. And so in this last chapter, I just asked the question, well, which, which model can it, is, it best fits with the evidence here? And the evidence, I argue, in this chapter is much earlier than the end of the second century. In fact, I argue that books are being received as scripture at the beginning of the second century, if not even late in the first. Um, and that really, I think, is confirmatory of the intrinsic model as opposed to the extrinsic model. And so I go through, you know, obviously a ton of historical evidence in this chapter. But really the major player is Irenaeus. Um, Irenaeus at the end of the second century, well, really more towards the middle, about 170, maybe 180 of the second century, uh, is very clear about the extent of the canon in his day. And when it comes to the Gospels, it's not even up for grabs at all. Um, scholars want to make Irenaeus out to be this innovator, that he was breaking new ground, right? That he was he was doing something no one had ever done. And, of course, I spend the chapter saying, well, that just doesn't fit. Uh, you know, it looks like Irenaeus is actually just doing what people have been doing for a long time before him. And that, that's sort of the essence of the case I make there. Can you tell us about the Muratorian fragment? Maybe introduce that to some of our listeners and expand upon the, the significance of that thing? Yeah, the Muratorian fragment is also known as the Muratorian canon. And it, it's just terminology that goes each way. And what it is, it's our earliest canonical list. Now, you have to define what you mean by list, right? It's not our earliest example of someone using New Testament books as scripture that predates the Muratorian fragment, uh, but it is our earliest canonical list where someone says, I'm going to write out in a list, literally, the books we receive. Mm -hmm. um, and they do that, uh, or this fragment does that. Uh, we, we end up from that fragment having about 22 out of 27 of our New Testament books included. Absent from that list are books like James, First, uh, Second Peter, um, uh, second, third John, and so on, some of these smaller books, which is actually fairly standard fare in, these, in, in the early canonical debates. It's almost always the little books that are the least known and, and therefore the most debated. 
um, and you end up having that's a very common sense thing if you think about it because they're they're much less uh, impactful due to their little size, and you can understand why that would be the case. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about the Mertorian fragment is the core is there very intact, and so what you have is the four Gospels, not in doubt, all 13 letters of Paul, which is interesting, not in doubt, uh, and then you've got a, you know, a handful of other books uh, that are in play too, including even the book of Revelation. So it's a very helpful canonical list. It's dated around 170 or 180 in the, in the mid to late 2nd century. That date's been contested, uh, but the original date is held, and so really it still stands as the earliest list. In fact, as a side note, I uh, gave a paper at ETS last fall, uh, which is a forthcoming publication coming out in a book soon, on Origins New Testament list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that, li- in that, in that uh, paper, I argue that, that Origins uh, is the first fully complete list of all 27 books of the New Testament in the, uh, in the middle of the 3rd century. Oh, wow. But that has ramifications for the Mertorian fragment, too, because it shows that list-making was a pretty common thing in early Christianity. Mike, this might be um, a stupid question on my part, but in both Canon Revisited and, and in uh, Question of the Canon, you focus on you know, the New Testament canon. Is there a reason for um, focusing on that as distinct from the totality of Scripture, the way other books on canon, you know, William Henry Green's... Um, uh, he separates the Old Testament and does an Old Testament introduction on the Old Testament canon. Is it helpful to look at these things separately in this way? Uh, that's an interesting question. I get asked that a lot. You know, kind of, are you going to do something on the Old Testament canon, or why didn't you? Kind of question. Um, in, in, I think that my limitation to the new is, is just basically practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, the obvious one being I'm a New Testament scholar, so it's sure. a field. Uh, secondly. You, you know, you got to tackle a topic you can cover in one book, uh, and right, right. It's, you already I already feel like you know I didn't cover it well enough even on the new, and so there's a practical consideration in terms of just how much you can do. Um, I don't think though there's an in principle difference between the two, and maybe that's a little bit what, what you're going to sure. is. Do I think there's that they should be radically separated with a big wall because they have to be handled differently? No. Now that being said, there are notable differences, even though they're not major. Uh, I mean, we can one one advantage of the Old Testament canon is we have later revelation that can attest to it, right? So mm-hmm, sure. part of part of demonstrating the Old Testament canon can be from the New, where if we don't have that luxury in the New, right? Uh, you know, so there's that angle. Uh, I think you have a lot of the similar principles that I bring up in Canon Revisited could be applied to the Old Testament. Um, obviously, there's some distinctions around apostles that are unique. But I would argue Old Testament prophets prophets are very similar in principle to the apostles, and so there's some some commonality there. So there's no real uh, in principle reason to, to treat them separately. Mainly, I've done it out of practical considerations. But I will say I've thought about writing a book on the Old Testament canon. Well, we um, would welcome it if you and do. And I so. probably would be, you know, reaching too far if I did. But I've thought about it. Brevard Childs years ago did the opposite. If you if you're familiar with him, he's a very mm-hmm. famous Yale scholar who wrote. Sure an original book on the Old Testament canon, because he's an Old Testament faculty or Old Testament professor, and then he decided to leave his field and go into the new. Uh, now, he could pull it off because he's a genius. Uh, <laughs> he, on the other hand, <laughs> that I helps. Need, I need another 30 years to prepare for that book. So. Yeah, Childs is, is always brought up in the canon discussions, and rightfully so. He was a significant figure. You offer this quote. I, it really stuck out to me when I read it. It's up toward the top of the conclusion. It's by Ian Hacking. He wrote, this in the preface to uh, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, the 50th Anniversary Edition, which is a very well-known and influential book by Thomas Kuhn. You use this quote from Hacking. He says, Normal science 
tends to discover what it expects to discover. How does that apply to this study of canon on both sides? Well, yeah, what you realize here is after what I've done in this book is I basically proposed historical models, right? Extrinsic in this instance, extrinsic versus intrinsic. Mm -hmm. Um, And really this last chapter is a nod to the truth of the way worldviews work. And it's really a nod even more subtly to a presuppositional uh, angle here, which is basically arguing that evidence is always interpreted through grids. It's always interpreted through paradigms. It's always interpreted through worldviews. So there's no sort of pure, neutral uh, way of looking at the evidence. So what that, in essence, means is that my book is, is advocating for a paradigm shift. Um, it's saying, look, that the, the model that is dominating modern scholarship is the extrinsic one. And therefore, it's found what it's expected to find. Why? Because it's, it's gone in with assumptions that fit the extrinsic model. I, on the other hand, have suggested an intrinsic model, uh, which, of course, is true, that there's, there's a sense in which it, too, will uh, be a model that conditions what you find. Um, but what, what uh, was interesting about the, the original book by, uh, by Kuhn, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, he says, yes, that works up until a point. Models condition the evidence up to a point, but sometimes the evidence becomes so overwhelmingly against the model, the model finally shatters. Yeah. And then it has to be replaced with another model. And that's, of course, what he means by a revolution in his title, uh, is that science is ultimately about uh, subsequent revolution after revolution. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm really trying to say in this last chapter is that, look, maybe it's time for a model shift. You know, uh, I, I try not to claim too much from my book here and suggest that it's some you know, revolution. I don't think that. Uh, I don't don't want to pretend that it's, you know, as significant as as other things. But I do think it's time for a paradigm change in the the area of canon. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe the third book in in this trajectory will be Canon Revolution. You can have a a big website. (laughs) Sounds like the Matrix third. Revolutions. (laughs) Canon Revolutions. Jared? Yeah, I have just one more question. This is very vague in general. Um, But, Mike, we talked about before how there is such – there's hardly anybody in the reformed world, especially, and also the evangelical world, doing work on canon. I'm just wondering what you would say to even like seminary students or PhD students, whoever. What what's the task going forward um, with some of the work that you've pioneered on this? What's what's left to do? I know there's a lot left to do, but how would you describe what you would like to see happening moving forward? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question, Jared, and 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 a, and, a, and a true observation. One of the things I've I've realized over the years is that I feel very uh, alone as a reformed evangelical in a world that is decidedly not that mm-hmm. uh, of canon studies. Um, I think that's probably a little unfortunate. It, it may it may suggest that we've conceded too much ground, and perhaps what we've done is we've decided, hey, look, we believe in inspiration and inerrancy, and we're just gonna we're just gonna believe that. And we're not going to really maybe do some of the, 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 the harder historical slogging, if you will, uh, behind the scenes. M- maybe that's true. Maybe that isn't. I, I don't know. Um, but that's certainly worth reflecting upon as evangelicals. Have we, have we done that or, or are we doing that if we left this area neglected? Now, on the flip side, I will say there's positive signs. And this is particularly in the area of textual criticism. Now, textual criticism is related to canon, but it's different, of course. Canon is which books. Criticism is dealing with which text or which words. But there's a great resurgence in evangelicals and textual criticism. And this is encouraging because that's a very technical field. Um, and it's a field I consider myself in, too, but not, not nearly as directly as canon. Um, you, you'll, you'll, you'll remember our conversations about the early text in the New Testament, which was one of our, our other interviews, uh, where there, that was filled with many evangelicals, that book. Mm-hmm. Um, over in the U.K., you know, 
people like Simon Gathercole and Pete Williams and Peter Head are all in the evangelical camp doing good work in textual criticism. You got Dan Wallace in the United States uh, doing good work in textual criticism, and he's got a lot of different disciples and so forth doing it. So I, I feel pretty good about evangelical attention to that area. Um, I, I, would, I wouldn't mind some more attention to canon, um, although uh, they're closely related. Um, but I hope that's a good sign overall. Yeah. Well, it's certainly something for many of our listeners to look into. I know a large number of them may be studying theology or planning on doing so in the relatively near future. And uh, this is a, an absolutely important field and one that there's a lot of opportunity, especially from people with Reformed convictions. So we look forward to people down the road doing more research and uh, bringing to light what is God's Word and the significance of it. That's important. I do want to remind people, uh, the book here, The Question of Canon, Challenging the Status Quo in the New Testament Debate by Michael J. Kruger, our guest today, published by IVP Academic. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. I do want to point people to various websites. You can find Mike online, his website, Fodder at michaeljkruger.com. Uh, you can also find Nick at New Covenant Presbyterian Church, newcovpres.com, as well as feedingonchrist.com. And Jared's personal blog is at buttinthieslastdays.com. Of course, we're available at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs, as well as how to subscribe and a calendar of upcoming events and uh, recordings. You can follow along. Uh, please also visit us online to uh, join our Voss group. Uh, you can find all the information about our, our new program, well, at least our uh, subset program that comes out through Christ the Center roughly once a month, uh, where Lane Tipton walks us through uh, Gerhardus Voss's biblical theology, and you can find all the information you'd like to about that at reformedforum.org slash Voss, V-O-S. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>